Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark's gospel, uh, the, f- the 14th chapter. We're actually going to begin not in verse 11, that's my, that's my fault, but in verse 12 and read through verse 31. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow, follow along, uh, please do. It's printed for you in your worship folder and it's, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. So let's, let's read together <clears throat> from Mark's gospel. And if you hear me struggling, I promise I'm not sick. I don't have COVID or anything like that. that my, my allergies are doing a number on me right now. I love the oak trees, but not this time of year. They drive me crazy. So <clears throat> I've been struggling the last couple of days. So let's read and pray for my voice. Beginning verse 12, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when, the sac- when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of the disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at a table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God does stand forever. Amen. This might seem a strange question, and it probably is telling of the kind of of me and and what's important to me in my life, but I I have a question that I would like for you to consider. What's what's the best meal of your life? Like, think back through your life, and you're like, the best meal I've ever had in my entire life. I have a number of nominees uh, and that should also tell you something or a lot about me, is I really can't narrow it down. But what, what makes for a best meal, the reason I ask the question, uh, what makes for a best meal is not just the food, but it's all of it. The occasion, the place, the people you're with, the whole thing. Meals, meals are special times often. Now, it's interesting that Jesus desired to be remembered through the generations with a meal. That's significant. He's institutionalizing something here. It doesn't come out so much in Mark as it does in the other Gospels, but something very significant is being institutionalized among his people. And Jesus, of course, intends that this meal be passed down from generation to generation. But think about it. Jesus desired to be memorialized through a meal. Of all of the things that he could have chose to be 
the way he would bring, you know, the gospel from generation to generation, he chose a meal. This Passover meal, of course, here, the center of the Jewish religion, it became the foundation for the Christian sacrament, the Lord's Supper or communion, however you, whatever, whatever language you use to refer to it, which God has graciously and I think wisely made the center of our life together. We are a people whose entire lives are ordered by and centered by a meal. That's interesting. And so if that's the case, then obviously we need to, to get as good an understanding of exactly what Jesus is doing here in institutionalizing this meal as we possibly can. And we're going to see a number of things. We need to understand this meal, and we can do so along these three headings. And they're what I've given to you, although the order is going to be a little different than, than it's there in your outline in your worship folder. But it is, first, a family meal, and we need to understand that. It is, secondly, a formative meal. It can shape us in profound ways. And thirdly, it is a forward-pointing meal. And if we see those three things, that will help us bring all of what Jesus means for us to learn here together about this meal that is meant to be at the very center of our lives that takes shape in us as God's people, okay? So let's look together uh, along those headings at this text. First, one of the things we undeniably learn here, it comes out very, very clearly in the text, is that this meal... And this meal that we celebrate together is a family meal. We are a family. And this meal that we'll celebrate together this morning, the meal of the Lord's Supper or communion, is a family meal. And it's the meal that makes us a family. The meal makes us a family. <clears throat> I grew up in a family that had family meals. Uh, in lots of different ways, all, on, on both sides of my family. But, but particularly, we would gather at my grandmother's house, my, my dad's mother, almost weekly, all the way, I mean, through when Ashley and I got married, so even into my adult life that was the case, and even when my children were young, almost weekly, typically Thursdays at lunch, she, she would cook, uh, and she was a really good cook, and she would cook our favorites, and we would all gather and have a meal together. But she really, my grandmother, she really only had three meals. That was it, three meals. And, it, and you, when you came, you knew it was kind of a surprise, you knew, but you knew it was going to be one of three things. She cooked spaghetti. She cooked chicken and dumplings and chicken and yellow rice at the same time. It was, I don't know why, so weird. Like, you had chicken and dumplings with a side of chicken and yellow rice when you went to her house, okay? That's what it was. I think it had to do with she was making the chicken stock, and so she just, like, made everything. And, you know, I, it didn't bother me. I, I mean, it's, I was fine with it. Uh, and then, but then, um, but our favorite was she made fried chicken and, and hand-cut homemade french fries. And you need to know she ruined fried chicken for me. My sister and my wife tried to figure out how to make it, but the problem was she didn't follow a recipe. She just like was one of those, like, just throw a little bit of that in there. So it's been lost in our family, and it's sad. But Publix is no good. Nothing, everything tastes dull in the world compared to her fried chicken. And we would sit around, and we would gather around her table, and it was never a thing where you rushed in and you rushed out. You'd get in trouble for that. You came early. You stayed. We lingered. We, we would talk for hours. It was the center of our family life. And some of the most vivid, some of the most vivid parts of my childhood all centered around those meals. The Passover meal was a family meal. It commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt, the tenth of ten plagues, as we've been telling the story, that finally broke Pharaoh's will, the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. But Israel, the Israelites were spared because each family was told ahead of time to kill a lamb and then take the blood from the sacrifice of the lamb and paint the door frames of their houses with the blood. And it said there that God would see the blood and when he saw the blood that he would pass over the house that was marked by the blood, thus Passover. So on that night, each family took a lamb and 
they killed it and they took the blood and they painted the door frames of their houses with it and then they took the lamb and they cooked it and they ate a family meal together as they prepared for God to bring them up out of Egypt. And they had the lamb there along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and, and wine and other things, all under the protection of the blood of the sacrifice. And that, that event on that sacred night so many hundreds and thousands of years ago that event was commemorated each year with this Passover meal. The families of Israel would gather every year during the Passover feast, which God institutionalized. And they would take a Passover lamb. In this case, they would bring it with them from wherever they lived all the way to Jerusalem. And they would bring it to the temple. And they would kill it. At the, the priests would kill it at the temple. And they would take the blood. And they would make atonement for the, the sins of the family. And then they would give the lamb back to the family. And the lamb would take it wherever they were staying. And they would cook it and they would have a family meal and everybody would gather and it was always the same food there was a lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs and wine it was always the same thing and there was always the same liturgy there was the same kind of order and flow to the to the meal it was an event there would be a host that would say all the lines that were meant to be said from the traditions of the people and the children would participate they would be there and there were parts where they would prompt the children to ask questions and they could hear the story of God saving his people. It was a ritual, it was a, it was a tradition, it was an initiation into the story of God's people. And Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus, it says here, made preparations to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. Now this is somewhat of an aside, but if you look back at verses 13 through 16... I personally don't see that as something miraculous. I think it is, it's showing us that Jesus has, has made preparations. He has gotten word out. He's worked his contacts. He's, he's figured out, because it says in Luke's gospel, he says to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. So Jesus, during this moment, during the feast, when families in Israel would typically have gathered together. Jesus didn't get together with his mom and dad, or his, you know, and his family. The disciples didn't go home and have the meal with their family. Jesus and his disciples together as a family came together to share this meal. Now, what are the lessons from that? Well, first, I think we can see that family is important. Family is kind of the background to all of what's happening here, both in the Old Testament and here in this story, families are important, and so are family meals. Because the family is bound up together in both sin and salvation. The threat to the firstborn son was a threat to the whole family. It carried an important lesson that the entire family was under the sentence of death and hell because of sin. Sin is, unfortunately, an inherited trait. Families pass down sins the way they pass down physical traits like eye color. And that's a sobering thing, especially if you're a parent. But it's also true that families pass down faith, that God's promises are made to family generations and not merely to individuals. And so there is something sacred about the family that we know to be true, but that is especially true as we can consider this text this morning. And not only family, but family meals. And it's interesting that only 30% of families in our country regularly have a family meal. And yet studies show conclusively, this is the scientific community, it has nothing to do with Christianity or faith. Scientific, sociological studies have been done, and the, the evidence is overwhelming that a family that shares a family meal, it results in better academic performance, higher self-esteem, greater sense of resiliency in kids, 
lower risk of drug and alcohol abuse, lower risk of teen pregnancy, less incidences of depression and anxiety in children and teens. Teens. It's just overwhelming. So what, what we're learning, all truth is God's truth. So what you learn from that is that there is something woven into the way that we have been made. We are made to belong. And we're made to celebrate that belonging by getting together with the people that we belong to and sharing a meal. Families are important. And family meals are too. But secondly, in the meal with his disciples here, what you see Jesus doing is Jesus is creating a new family. He's creating a new family. And when families gathered together throughout Jerusalem, Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples to, eat, disciples to eat the Passover together as a new family, bound together by more than just blood relation. We are made a family by Jesus' blood. We are bound together not because we are related to one another, you know, as, as a family, we are bound together by grace. It's something more profound than just mere blood ties. There's a theology lesson in the way this material is structured that's very significant. And it's why I wanted to read from the broader context, even though really we're focused on verses 22 through 25. But that's the part everybody knows. But what you see, if you kind of step back and take the whole thing in, so if you have a Bible and you can look at it or just kind of look at the scope of it in what's printed for in your worship folder, you see that the stuff that everybody knows in verses 22 through 25, it comes... After the revelation that one of them would betray Jesus, that's verses 17 through 21. So just before Jesus talks to them about, hey, there's one of you, we're at this meal together, there's one of you that's going to betray me into the hands of, of the religious leaders and the Romans. It's followed by the prediction that even Peter and the rest of the disciples would betray him, that the whole group of them is going to prove cowardly and run away when things get really hot. And so what you have here is you have verses 22 and 25 and the two sections on either side of it, it's another sandwich. Remember we've been talking about Mark's sandwiches? It's how you understand what Mark, it's Mark's literary device for teaching you what he's trying to teach you. And you have this important part in verses 23 to 25 in between two other parts that kind of set the scene. And here's, here's what the whole thing means. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and yet he was there eating and drinking with him. He knew that in a few short hours, the disciples were going to run away in fear as they came to arrest him, and yet it did not deter him from having this meal with him. The meal was attended by traitors and cowards, and Jesus did it anyway. He did it intentionally, which means that the meal here that we have inherited in this meal we celebrate together is not a table of merit. It is a table of grace. And this is the kind of family that we're meant to be to one another, where love and forgiveness and reconciliation are the norm. We do not treat one another as our sins deserve, but show mercy and grace. We refuse to lock up, keep our hearts locked up in a casket of selfishness to become unbreakable. Can you, 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 wouldn't, um, you would understand Jesus doing that, wouldn't you? Knowing that these men that he had given so much to are about to betray him and prove cowardly and run away, but he did not lock himself up in a casket of selfishness to become unbreakable. He risked a broken heart eating with them, this intimate moment with them. He chose vulnerability, and we can too. We can choose vulnerability. We can show Hesed love, that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the security, the safety, the joy of belonging to a family like that? where you don't have to hide all your ugly parts, where you're loved unconditionally, 
It's what the human family is supposed to be, created in the image of God, who is Trinity, who is family. It's what we're all made for, and yet our families are a close-knit group of sinners, and our family legacies are the long story of sinning and being sinned against. But here's the good news. Jesus is redeeming families. And he's redeeming the idea of family by making a family of us. A family of grace. At least that's how the church is supposed to work. We are a family. And this is our family meal. And the meal is what makes us a family. So secondly, though, we see that it's not just a family meal. It's also a formative meal. And that's what I mean when I say that the meal is what makes us a family. This, this meal, the Lord's Supper, our Passover meal, contains spiritual truths And if we grasp the meaning of the meal, it can powerfully shape us into the kind of family that I was just describing, that Jesus intends for us to be to one another. Not like what the rest of the world knows, but something unique in all of the world that we can belong to that can heal our hearts in profound ways. And so let's read again the the, the words that are the uh, the most familiar to us in verses 22 through 24. Let's just focus our attention there again for just a minute. Jesus, it says there, Mark writes, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave, gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out from, excuse me, for many. Now, this is all very specific. There was a form to the Passover meal. Uh, there was, as I've said, there was a specific liturgy that was, that they said the same things, and they told the same stories all over again. Now, there were four cups Four different cups of wine that were served throughout the meal. Now, that should tell you something about what kind of meal it is, by the way. No holding back here. It probably got a little festive, if you know what I mean, by the time they were done with this meal. And we know uh, from, from, the, from history and from the stories that were told that this is the third cup. So this is the third of fourth cups. It's towards the end of the meal. And at the third cup, whoever was presiding over the meal would stand up at that time and, uh, and they would bless the food and the wine, and they would explain the symbolism. It was the teaching moment in the meal. They would explain the symbolism of all the different parts of the meal. So whoever the host was would stand up, and they, and they would say something like, well, this, and they would point to the bread on the table and say, this is the bread of our affliction, with our, which our fathers ate in the wilderness as they came up out of Egypt. It was a way of retelling the story of Exodus so that the people could reenter into that night and, and find, see themselves as being a part of this amazing story of salvation that God was telling. And so Jesus, at the third cup, he stands up, because he is the, the host here, and like the host would, he begins to stand up, but he, he explains, but he explains in a very different way. He doesn't look at the bread and say, this bread is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate as they came up out of Egypt. He looks at the bread, he says, this bread is my body, it is the bread of my affliction. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is connecting what he is about to do in his death and resurrection with the Exodus story. He's saying, I'm about, he's telling them and us, I'm about to lead the ultimate Exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance. Not something greater than you can imagine through my body being broken and my blood being shed upon the cross. I'm going to save you, not merely from political oppression and slavery, but from sin and death and from evil itself. I, I am the true Passover lamb. I, in other words, in every feast, the lamb that were eaten for hundreds of generations, all of the thousands of lambs over the hundreds and thousands of years of of people bringing lambs to the temple to be slain. Jesus is saying, I am the one that all of that has been pointing to. I am the fulfillment of that whole story. 
I am the one. It's me. All that other, it's just been pointing to me. That's what he's saying here to them and to us. Now, in that first Passover event, God brought down divine judgment and justice upon human evil in a kind of preview of the final judgment at the end of time. But it wasn't just the Egyptians. Remember, in Exodus 12, it was the Israelites, too, who were liable to God's judgment. Because every human being, because of our sin and our self-centeredness, we all participate in what makes the world a terrible and broken place, full of injustice and oppression. We all are responsible because we're all sinners. And we all deserve wrath and hell because of our rebellion against our maker. But here's the thing. When that truth begins, and that is part of the, that's part of the meaning of this meal, is to remind us that that is true, that we are all Sinners in the sight of God, deserving his displeasure, except in, in his sovereign mercy, that we are liable to God's judgment because of our participation in everything that makes the world a terrible, broken place. And when that realization comes home to your heart, it's the first part of becoming a Christian. It's kind of the first step in the spiritual life. But the most important thing is when that comes, when you come to that realization, when you wake up to the reality that you are a sinner, and that you deserve for God to come in justice against you, what do you do? When you realize in that moment the truth about yourself, what do you do? And however you answer that question, what do you do, determines whether or not you're a Christian. Because most people, when they have that moment, oh my, I'm a sinner, what they do is, is they, they think they need to do something. They get religion. They, they, they think, you know what, I've been a bad person. I need to become a better person. And so they, they start trying really hard to change their life and be different than they were before. But that's, that's just moralism. That's work salvation. And it is the default mode of the human heart. And you need to know that this is the direction your heart is going to want to go, but it's not Christianity. Actually, it's the opposite of Christianity. And yet there's so many people Inside of Christianity, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, still trusting in their good works to save them. It's subtle. It's not right there on the surface, but it's there nonetheless. And so there's a song that we sing sometimes, I Boast No More, and and it was written by Isaac Watts. And in the song, there's this one phrase. It says, I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. And it's revealing how we all, even long into our life with Christ, we still... (laughs) We still, every one of us in the room, okay, nobody's exempt from this. Every one of us in the room, we harbor secret hopes that we will figure out a way, that we will, we will find a way to achieve some kind of righteousness or goodness that we, can, that we can use to earn favor with God. Some sense of our own goodness that God will look at and say, oh man, look at that, wow. And we would find our standing and our rightness with God on the basis of what we've done. Now, David Brainerd, who is famous for his diary, which was published by his friend Jonathan Edwards. He was a contemporary of Isaac Watts, who wrote that hymn. And one of the more famous entries in his diary was a reflection on that song and on that one phrase in particular in that hymn, I quit the hopes I had before and trust the merits of thy son. Here's what he wrote. He said, when I was about 20 years of age, and this is is funny, it happens a lot of times about this age. When I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts, my words, my actions. I thought I must be very seriously religious. Now listen to what he says. Though I often confess to God that I, of course, deserve nothing. In other words, I I told God I was a sinner. Yet, I still harbored a secret hope of recommending myself to God by all these duties and all this morality. I thought... That through my repenting and praising him and seeking him, I could make good steps towards heaven. Do you see what he's saying? 
See, my strategy for, for being a sinner was I was going to get religion. I was going to get serious. I was going to do all of these things that God told me to do. But he says, I thought, I, I thought through my repenting and praising him and seeking him that I could make good steps towards heaven. When my heart seemed full of love and faith, I felt God would surely be affected by that. Surely God's looking at me and saying, wow, look at, look at him. Isn't, he, isn't that great? He says, in other words, I healed myself with my duties. The same thing happened to the Galatians. The Galatian Christians, after receiving the gospel of grace from the Apostle Paul, you might remember they fell back into works righteousness. They started to say, you've got to be circumcised and do all these other kinds of things. And if you remember, Paul wrote to them, he didn't treat it as a minor error. He had some pretty strong things to say to those people. He said they had left Christianity altogether, that they had fallen away from grace because Christianity is grace. And the spiritual lesson of the Passover, commemorated and reinforced in this meal and the meal that we share, is this. Here it is. This is the meaning, that if you grasp it, it can change your life. The only hope you have in light of your sin and God's justice is to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Your pedigree, your morality, your good intentions, your moral performance, that can't be your hope. The only way to be saved is to have faith in a substitute. Because that night, in every single home, all throughout Egypt, Egyptian and Israelite, in every single home, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Either a dead son or a dead lamb. One or the other. One or the other. Which means you cannot be saved on the basis of your merit. You can only be saved by mercy, by substitutionary sacrifice. But of course, the question that lingered in every Passover meal, for anybody who was spiritually astute at all, and the question that has kind of lingered for all of those hundreds and thousands of years would be this. What, what, that is, why would the death of a lamb be enough to save you? And the answer, of course, throughout the Old Testament and explicitly in the New is it can't. The Hebrews writer says it this way, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Which means that the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices through all the centuries, they pointed to a greater sacrifice. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here because if you read all four gospels, I've said the meal very clearly, it was, there were four things they would eat. They would eat the lamb, they would eat the bread, they would eat the lamb with herbs, the bread, and wine. So you had lamb, herbs, bread, wine. But if you read the four gospels, they talk very explicitly about the bread and the wine, but all four of them, if you read and you see this scene, in, in none of them do they mention the main course of the meal, the lamb. Now, why would that be? Why? Because Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. You see that? An animal cannot be the substitute for a person, only a person can. And so Isaiah, the prophet, as these things began to dawn on the people of God throughout all the, all the centuries, he described a suffering servant, a person who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah, he said he would be wounded for our transgressions, that this person, he would be crushed for our iniquities, that our sins would be laid on him and he would die in our place. And when Jesus said in verse 22 and verse 24, this is my body, this is my blood, this is the, this is the bread of my affliction, he was identifying himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is the meaning of the meal. That is the spiritual truth. But here's the thing. You have to take it. You see how Jesus said it? Look at verse 22. It's really important. He said, take, that's an imperative. In other words, there's something that you have to do. There's something that has to come from you as you take it. This is my body. You have to grasp it. You have to take hold of it and make it yours that's the language of faith. And it's the difference between saying Jesus died for sins as a theological proposition 
and saying, Jesus died for my sins and making it personal. You make it your own, which means to believe in Jesus, it means that you are actively, you actively begin to seek to satisfy the desires of your heart with his love and not with worldly things. He becomes your food and drink. Functionally, we're all feasting on other things. We call them idols. We're feasting on the praise and approval of others or material possessions or safety and security or what a great person we've become or being a good student or a good mom or whatever it might be. But believing means you stop trying to find your sustenance in anything other than the person and work of Jesus. And you eat and you drink to become satisfied in him and him alone. And that's how God means to use this meal in your life, to drive the truth of the gospel home to your heart, where you've lost sight of the truth of grace, where you're not remembering that Jesus loves you and died for you by mercy alone, and you're discouraged and beat up, or you're beginning to become boastful and proud and thinking what a great person you are. This meal is a remembrance. Or wherever you need a greater faith in the gospel, what Jesus says is that his body can be true food and his blood can be true drink. That if you eat the bread of his body, you can truly never hunger again. You can have all of those other desires just wiped out of your life. And if you drink from the water of life that he gives, you'll never be thirsty again. And when that happens, it'll be such a profound change in you. And when it happens to us collectively, it'll be such a profound collective change that it will form us in a very unique, very special, in a supernatural way. Well, what kind of people, what kind of people does that make? What, how specifically can this shape us? What kind of people does it shape us into? And there's so many things, and I don't want us to get sidetracked, so many things we could say, but think about it. People who believe the meaning and have grasped the meaning of this truth, there are a number of things. Well, they would be humble, not boastful or proud. They'd be able to confess their sins and their failures because they're not disqualifying. Those things are assumed. They would not be self-righteous or judgmental. They'd be profoundly gracious and patient and enduring with other sinners and strugglers, forgiving, joyful, peaceful, not driven, not anxious because, of course, it is finished, welcoming and warm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine belonging to a family like that? See, this is God's kindness knowing that work salvation is so stubbornly woven into our sinful hearts and all of the anxiety and the hubris and pride that come with it to give us this meal and to make it the centerpiece of our faith so that by eating and drinking and relearning again and again the lesson of grace and to have it take root in our hearts that we might become different and together might become a different kind of family. That's what he intends. But thirdly, one more thing to say, and that is, and we need to wrap towards the, the close here. This is also, it's a family meal and it's a formative meal, but it's also a forward pointing, pointing meal. Jesus said in verse 25, look there. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In other words, he is reminding us that there's still something coming, which means as we eat and drink together, we are practicing. But this meal today, in just a minute, it's not the thing itself. There is a joy and peace that is not ours yet. Not the fullness of it anyway. All we get for now is a taste. We get crumbs. But Jesus says there's a kingdom that is on the way that will one day be ours. And the kingdom is the glory of God so immediate that there's no need for the sun of the moon because the glory is the light. Can you imagine that? That's what heaven will be like. There will be no moon and no sun because the light source will be the glory of God. 
so radiant for all to see that we will walk and live by the light of his glory. The kingdom of God is face to face with God again. The kingdom of God is our fully redeemed selves. Oh, I can't wait. But until then, until then, our experience of the spiritual truths of the meal will be at best incomplete, which means that we have to ready ourselves for what life is like, and that is that we will always and increasingly be repenting and believing and repenting and believing throughout all of our life, which means the core problem of our spiritual lives is gospel forgetfulness. I believe, and yet there's also unbelief. I believe, and there are places where unconsciously I've forgotten what I believe. I know, I know, but it's just a theoretical knowledge. It's not making any difference in the way I feel or the way I act. And if the core problem is gospel forgetfulness, then the core need is gospel remembrance. And that's what this meal is meant to provide. But I mean something very specific by that. So just let me close with this. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings. I haven't used it for a while, okay? So I've used this illustration in the past, though, uh, but I, lo I love it so much. There's a scene where Pippin, Pippin is one of the hobbits, and uh, he's one of the little people that's kind of running around with all these really important people, but, it, but the hobbits are the true heroes of the story. He's standing at the gates of Minas Tirith, and Minas Tirith is kind of the, the last city of men that has not fallen to the, the forces of darkness, okay? So the enemy has come against the city and sieged the city, and they finally break through, and the city is being overrun by, by, by evil. And uh, it's this moment where all hope seems lost, and it, he's, you know, he's just waiting there for them to come and kill him too, and he's just overwhelmed with grief. And then all of a sudden it says that he hears the sound of a horn in the distance, and it is the king of Rohan, an ally of that particular kingdom of men who had come with his armies to fight. And this king, Theoden, rode forth to his own death, but in dying, he saved the city and his forces overran the forces of evil. And here's how Tolkien describes Pippin's experience. And this is why, this is my advertisement for why you should read Tolkien. Okay, just listen to this. It's very beautiful. He said, he, Pippin, he rose to his feet. He heard, the, he heard the horn. He rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him and he stood listening to the horns and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in all the years after could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. Do you know what that means? It means this moment was so powerful for him. It was such a powerful moment for Pippin. It so impressed him, itself upon his heart that from that day, Every horn that he heard reminded him of the horns of Rohan. Every time he heard a horn in the distance, he was just going about doing things, whatever. He was distracted, you know, busy with stuff, and he would hear a horn, and all of a sudden there would be joy and relief. It would be as if he was right back there on that day reliving that whole thing all over again. The joy and relief and the celebration and wonder of that first horn would come rushing back into his heart, and he would feel it all over again. Pippin lived. He lived every day with the knowledge of Theoden's sacrifice, but then he would hear a horn and he knew it in a deeper way. Jesus gives us this meal as a horn in the distance to remind us that we too have a king who rode out to his own death to save us. And every time we gather and eat and drink until the kingdom comes, he promises to take the truth of Jesus' sacrifice and love and drive it deeper and deeper into our hearts until the day 
when we drink with him new in the kingdom of heaven. And all of our wantings become havings. All of the incompleteness of what we experience now will become the fullness of joy and satisfaction and love that he means for us to live with. But until then, I think we could pray along with the hymnist who said these words. He said, may sinful sweets be all forgot and earth grow less in our esteem. Christ and his love fill every thought and faith and hope be fixed on him. That's what we can do as we come to the meal together this morning. So let's pray. Would you pray with me? So Father, as we gather now around the table that you've prepared for us, would you do just that? Would sinful sweets be all forgot? Would earth grow less in our esteem? And would Christ and his love fill every thought and all our faith and hope be fixed on him? Come Holy Spirit in your power and meet with us around this table this morning, shaping us all of those characteristics that we might be a community, a family for one another, against all of the discouragement and despair that this world can heap upon us, that we would be a place of encouragement and warmth and welcome and joy for one another. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, um, with most things in my life, I don't know if it's been this way for you, but it has been for me. With most things in my life, big things, I'm thinking like the big things that you prepare for and you spend time there, so much in retrospect of the joy is in the anticipation and the buildup, and then the thing itself is often kind of like, it lets you down a little bit. You know, I, like the most important thing sometimes. Uh, and that just seems to be a, a feature of the life we live, that there's more joy in the anticipation than in the thing itself. But here's, I want to say this. When we, that day that, that song's talking about, there will be no letdown on that day. In fact, the joy will be so profound and so complete that it actually, what, what the scripture says is that the joy of that day is already working itself backwards into our lives and transforming the sorrows that we experience now into occasions for joy themselves. And so the promise of the scripture is, is that though you may sow in tears, maybe this week was a, was, a, was a week of sowing in tears, or maybe this coming week will be a week of sowing in tears, you might sow in tears, but you will come back reaping joy. That is the promise. And that's what this benediction means. And it's because God's face is turned towards you in Jesus uh, to work all things together for your good. Our best things are yet to come. That's what that song means. And that's what this, these words mean. And so receive them and then go, uh, though you may sow in tears, knowing that you reap in joy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.